Welcome back to episode 12 of the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. The Seth Meyers of International Arbitration <laughs> Shows. And I'm your Dorcas Kulibori, the Stephen Colbert of International Arbitration Shows. <laughs> I want to be the, what's her name? Patricia Wolf? Trisha Wolf? Did you hear about the, the comedian who addressed the correspondence dinner? Yeah, and, and offended people as a comedian. That's shocker. No, what she, has I mean, the world she become? Went in. She went in pretty hard. As she should. You go. All right. Well, this is the, uh, the episode 12 of our second season. We are trucking right along. And we would first like to give a shout out to our sponsors. Since this is another Sydney-based podcast episode, we would like to thank our sponsors, the Swedish Arbitration Association and Mannheimer Svartling. Um just a little plug for the SAA, the Swedish Arbitration Association. There is a conference happening in September um, that is attracting a lot of international speakers. So you can sign up um, on their website. And is also, it biannual uh, Swedish Arbitration Day? Uh, yes, it is the Swedish Arbitration Day, exactly. <clears throat> um, and then we are becoming more legit as a podcast. And to prove that to you, we have two things we want to show you. The first is... We're going to start getting discount codes. <laughs> on arbitration-related literature. On arbitration-related qualification. <laughs> um, <laughs> on mattresses we... and energy drinks. <laughs> yeah, that's coming up. Can you imagine? Uh, can you imagine us doing a mattress commercial? Reading mattress like ads? Uh, arbitration lawyers got to sleep as well. And try and figure out like how to weave that in logically to be like, so after you've written a submission, you need to sleep on a Casper mattress. <laughs> That's never going to work. No, not that kind of podcast. Not yet. Anyway, we'll see what happens as our uh, both both of our lives go downhill. Maybe things will change. But for now, it's it's Oxford University Press that we talked to in Sydney yet again. A, a testament to the way the ICA Congress is connecting people in the business. Um, a, a woman at Oxford University Press, which is. Uh, popularly shorted in OUP in the academic business, uh, talked to us because she had figured out that we, uh, as it happens, we're talking to a lot of OUP authors, some of whom we've already talked to on the podcast, for example, Taylor St. John about her book on the rise of investor state arbitration, and some of whom are coming up because we had a few interesting conversations in Sydney with people who just happened to recently have written books on OUP. So we're basically the, the the publisher OUP they offer to to give discount codes to our listeners for these books that we're talking about on the podcast. Definitely, it's pretty cool. It's just another step in our conquering of the podcast podosphere. <laughs> um, and then, so another way that I'm gonna that I think is a way that a podcast establishes itself is when they start getting emails from listeners. And I think that's something that we've always been pretty good about if people have contacted us that we kind of loop them into the podcast somehow because we're pretty grassroots over here and we'll take all the help we can get. But we do get some puff pieces and some just complimentary emails. Yeah, we have for a long time. And this, we, I, this started just another week uh, or a week ago, I realized that our editor, Jan, doesn't get paid a lot of money. So 
I realized we should start forwarding this to him as a way of appreciation and also showing him that he's part of something, something bigger than himself, which I guess isn't always the case when he, when he is editing and listening to our voices after, after his normal job, when he, he gets home and spends the night editing. We should have the happy fun time jingle be changed to just like a remix of Jan's name, like a Pokemon. Yeah, right. But, but. But that, like the the notion that we should uh, show him that he is a part of something bigger uh, as an uh, as a way to thank him, that sort of grew into maybe we should start doing this on the on the podcast as well to just share with the listeners. You are not alone. You, there are at least seven more people listening to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah. So, do you want to start with a letter that we've heard? Yeah, I, I got an interesting, we got an interesting email uh, to the arbitration station at gmail.com from a law student in Chicago uh, a while back uh, uh, writing this. As a law student hoping to work in the international arbitration field post-graduation, your podcast has been an amazing source of information and a fun way to spend my commute on the train to and from university. Plus, I've been able to learn, oh, sorry, I've been able to earn some brownie points with my international commercial arbitration professor and vSmooth coach by pointing them to your podcast. So thank you very much for that. What's a brownie point? <laughs> brownie point is, you know, an extra star from your professor. So you gain brownie points. I think it comes from brownie. Have you heard, you know, Girl Scouts? So if you're a young Girl Scout, you're called a brownie. And I guess you earn. Oh, points. okay. I see. You're, I see. That makes sense. That, so anyway, this was an American JD student, JD student, singular. Right. I have another student that wrote to us. Um, it says, uh, from India, from the Nalsar University of Law, say, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. And I just wanted to write in to thank you for teaching and entertaining me every Tuesday for the past few weeks. This was early on. Um, I discovered the beauty of international arbitration during my participation in the Vismut earlier this year and have been trying to popularize the field as an option among classmates and friends ever since. I now recommend your podcast to every classmate or junior keen to learn about arbitration, not only because it is informative, but more so because it discusses several of the fun aspects that attach to being an arbitration lawyer, which is kind of what we're what we're trying to do. It offered, it offered me a glimpse into what being a member of the arbitration community is like, and this has only strengthened my already firm conviction to pursue a career in the field. So that's exciting. That's great. Another one bites the dust, and it's our fault. We, <laughs> we lure people into arbitration. <laughs> and then finally, just the other day, we got a, another email, uh, and the only reason we're not saying people's names is that we have... Oh, course have not cleared with these people right. that we're reading their emails but i guess they, in, in a generic form they should be fine with it this is from mexico city uh, from a person writing hello i am a career diplomat slash international law professor from mexico and i just wanted to shoot you a quick message to let you know that i love your podcast as you know traffic in mexico Mexico City is a big thing. So every day on my way to work for the last weeks, I've been listening to your show, one full episode on my way to work and one full second one on my way back from work. Yes, I realize we do have a huge traffic problem. <laughs> <laughs> Which is uh, good because the episode that we aired just immediately after this, of course, oops, sorry, we talked to a class one officer from Mexico City. So hopefully our listener from Mexico City enjoyed that particular segment. Exactly. So let's talk about who we have on this segment. Oh, that's that's a good, smooth, natural segue. <laughs> I, I I'm very thrilled about this episode. It's sort of a semi-scholarly uh, focus 
from from Sydney, although the first conversation is with somebody who looks like a scholar and walks like a scholar and talks like a scholar, but who isn't a scholar, and that's Christopher Bondi, uh, who is uh, a Canadian practicing lawyer working for Cooley in London, but who used to represent Canada working for the International Trade Law Bureau at the, at the Canadian government. And we are using his background as a, as a reason to talk to him about representing states in arbitrations, both based off of his experience representing the government from within the government, because he both negotiated treaties on behalf of Canada, including CETA, and also litigated treaties or arbitrated rather treaties on behalf of Canada. And since leaving the Canadian government, he's acted on behalf of several other sovereigns. So we talked uh, to him about the specificities involved in representing a state client very interesting conversation yeah that i enjoyed that very much and then enter scholarly territory when we talk to stavros brekolakis who's a professor at queen mary in london and colleague of uh, the professor who helped us set off this season with the, the first episode uh, lucas mysteris to two greek arbitration professors at the same faculty <laughs> i don't know what's going on <laughs> <laughs> crisis in 2008 yeah, <laughs> maybe. Stavros uh, has written a lot and spoken a lot about public-private arbitration and is, is um, very passionate about this, this notion that some types of contracts should be viewed through a public law lens rather than a commercial contractual law lens. And uh, he moderated a panel on public-private arbitration at ICA, but didn't get to speak that much himself. So we, we gave him a microphone and, and four eager ears to, to, so that he could talk some more on the podcast. I think this is a very interesting topic and a very good conversation. So I, I'm happy we could, we could get him on. Yeah, I'm planning a conference in November here in Stockholm, and I think that's maybe one of the topics I want to lift up because I think there's so much more discussions that could be had. He was talking about the capacity of commercial, you know, private party to private party arbitration and, and its ability to cover these types of issues or address these types of issues um, sufficiently and when it's not in the public sphere as in an investment context, strictly investment context. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, yeah, because this discussion is completely in the commercial arbitration sphere, but we see the same thing as in investment arbitration, which is that the field of arbitration is sort of lagging behind right. societal development generally. Like we have so many contracts now in which public entities are acting essentially in a private function, and we have like private contracts that deal with so many aspects of, of public administration but arbitration is still like moving on in the same doctrinal view we've had for a long time and it always it always takes a decade before arbitration has caught up with with general development and, and business and politics exactly and then finally we interview someone from my alma mater american university washington college of law susan frank and she talks about costs in international arbitration which just like it's the end of this episode, it's the end of every arbitral proceeding, and it does not give enough attention. So she, in a um, very passionate plea, says we need to focus a bit more on how we address costs and how tribunals award costs. Um, so it is So it is quite a scholastic setup we have. Yeah, she's a, a very well-established well academic who's been in the business longer than than most, and I've, I've read so much of her work that's been pioneering, pioneering 
it's very good to have her on as well. We we could never have done this without the assistance of Ika, no. this type of, of of people to get them all in the same episode, and it's the same with the previous ones we've aired from from Sydney. I'm I'm we are both thankful to Ika for helping us with this. Absolutely. All right. Well, without further ado, let's get started. We've managed to lure yet another Canadian into our makeshift exactly. <laughs> recording studio. We have a bias for Canadians. Thank you so much, Christophe Bondi, for, for coming here and joining us. Thank you. We were hoping to talk to you a little bit about representing states, because you are very Canadian in the sense that you've represented the Canadian government for quite some time, but now you don't anymore, I guess, because you're in private practice. Right. Well, I left a couple of years ago to rejoin private practice. I did represent Canada as senior counsel for better part of a decade uh, as lead counsel in a number of Chapter 11 cases, cases like Eli Lilly and Kemptour, among others. Um, and I also, during that period, uh, was senior counsel to Canada in international trade and investment negotiations. Um, so it was interesting because I had experience on both sides of the fence, both uh, dealing with treaties that have been signed and, and ratified well before I arrived and that I was um, dealing with disputes that arose under those and with the next generation of treaties. And I think that uh, joint kind of dual-hatted role was, was very useful because when it came to negotiations, one could say, um, this provision needs a bit of tinkering or actually that uh, language which you're proposing is not a good idea and certainly not that. So uh, yeah, it was a very rich role. And since I've returned to private practice, I've had the privilege of representing a number of governments in um, active proceedings, in international investment proceedings. And I think that experience uh, for Canada has um, been in good stead. And is that a, um, a common position, the, the fortunate position you mentioned? Because it, it seems often that from the outside that within governments there are different divisions doing the treaty negotiations and different doing the, the litigation of the treaties. Yeah, I think that it does depend from government to government. And my understanding is that in several governments uh, they are different departments. Um, and I think it's, it's a bit too bad because there is a great uh, degree of or opportunity for cross-pollinization there. Um, and the other thing is uh, having governments that have the resources and are organized enough to have in-house counsel so that um, depending on the state they can take different approaches but where you have counsel at least to understand the process enough and are committed to it enough that they can actively play an active role whether or not they decide to um, bring in out outside counsel. You have the issue when you're representing a state of always thinking about the systemic issues for positions that are taken in the arbitration, thinking about the state's policy. Um, it's not just that dispute, it's thinking in the long run. And I think that's one of the challenges for people who have never worked in a government or even you know, acting for them but from the private sector is getting into that mindset of it's not just about this specific uh, specific case. You mentioned that yesterday when you were presenting here at ICA uh, on the evolution of the FET standard and how states have approached this issue. And I think you said it's unfortunate that more states do not publish their pleadings and submissions because they might actually constitute state practice. That's got to be a challenge though as counsel in the sense that you're not just advocating a position, you are also 
an agent of the state and potentially even you know developing customary international law as you argue your case how do you take that into account when you prepare a case well it's a great responsibility and you say that it might constitute state practice in fact it does constitute state practice the issue as you as you note is simply whether or not it's excessive accessible and so it does mean that as one's developing legal arguments that are put in uh, pleadings in a case um, one is thinking about what are the implications of those positions precisely because they're going to be a contrib contribution to the elaboration of customary international law. I mean, I don't pretend that in one particular submission one's going to establish that, but it's part of uh, contributing it. And one of the things I've noted since my return to the private sector is I have seen um, private sector pleadings on behalf of states, um, which uh, might as well have been drafted by a claimant um, just because people have grown up in a particular perspective on international investment law and haven't really been fed to the uh, state perspective on things. Um, and so things can slip through and uh, it can be a, a bit hair-raising. Um, I've had to pull some, some things out of the fire, uh, not at my current firm, but I've ha had to do that. Yeah, it's of course unfortunate if the, if the state is arguing in inconsistent ways in two different cases or saying something in one case that undermines That's it. why I was saying why they wouldn't publish it in the first place, their pleading. Well, I think that it's just a question. I mean, there were long habits of confidentiality in international investment arbitration that really arose out of uh, international commercial arbitration because the one was kind of leaning on the other in terms of the, the procedure. And also, I think there are different states have a different approach to um, you know, revealing their position to the public. I think that's evolving. The Mauritius Convention on Transparency um, hopefully will make a big impact over time. Um, and that will contribute to the legitimacy of the system. And I think the fact that the pleadings are, un it's understood that the pleadings will be exposed to public scrutiny will probably have a, a good effect on those pleadings because people will realize the, the responsibility. I mean, what you have right now is that tribunals will tend to um, rehearse the arguments that have been put forward by the claimant and by the state in their award, but it's not quite the same thing. You know, you want to hear it uh, directly from the horse's mouth. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, did you use external counsel when you worked for the Canadian government, I, or did you guys no. do everything in-house? No, we do everything in-house. So, yeah, it's just uh, been a policy of the Canadian government for since the start. The, the Trade Law Bureau, which is part of, it's in the Department of Foreign Affairs, was set up in the early 1990s around the negotiation of NAFTA. At that time, there were maybe about four or five lawyers, and it was really to support the NAFTA negotiation process. Now there are probably about 50 or 60 lawyers. They deal with all the WTO litigation, uh, disputes arising under the WTO, and uh, negotiation of international trade and investment agreements, the handling of especially Chapter 11 cases, of course, under the NAFTA, and also providing advisory services across government. So that's a, a specific situation because you have a large, rich government with um, enough work to merit having a cadre of lawyers who are, you know, hired and dedicated to that kind of work. And it's a privilege to be in that position. I mean, I had fabulous work the whole time I was working for the Canadian government. I know that for many other states, they're just not in a position to have that kind of um, uh, standing stable of lawyers doing, doing their work. But I think it is important for them to have some continuity and to, to you know, and for the lawyers who are working from the outside and supporting them to know uh, that they have to contribute to the consistency of state policy.
What was the dynamic between the government and your role within this trade bureau? Uh, were they very? Was it an active collaboration? Was it that separate that it would be two parties collaborating, or was it all very enmeshed into one kind of systematic development of your pleadings? Yeah. Well, it always depends on what part of the government's measure was at issue in an investor state uh, case. So the interesting thing in the Canadian context is that the federal government has undertaken under that uh, international agreement uh, responsibility vis-a-vis obligations to to investors. Um, And yet the measure might actually be adopted at the subnational level, so at the provincial Mm -hmm. level or even at the municipal level. Um, And so you can find yourself as the federal government lawyer uh, wandering into a de- ministry at the provincial level um, saying, can we have all the documents relating to... <laughs> They're shaking uh, in their boots. Yeah, and, and when it, you know, especially when it happens that the buck stops with the minister at the provincial level who actually took the ultimate decision. So you'd have to enter into very, um, you know, into negotiations with whatever other level of government to have joint defense and confidentiality agreements in place. Um, and funding arrangements with regard to the claim, uh, who's going to share the costs, who's going to pay the award at the end. And it would depend from situation to situation uh, how easy or not that was. When the measure was at the, the federal level, it was easier. And I always would have a policy client within the Department of Foreign Affairs who was maintaining that consistency in relation to the position that was taken in the arbitration on substantive standards and what oh. we could, you know, position we could take. Um, but um, we would also have clients with regard to the, the substantive measure. For example, in the Eli Lilly case, my policy client was in the Department of Foreign Affairs, but also was in Industry Canada because uh, Industry Canada has ownership for the Patent Act in Canada. And it was usually, uh, I had an enormous amount of freedom in that role. Um, again, I think it's just because uh, Canada is pretty adult about these sorts of things and was left to kind of get on with the work. Um, so it was kind of fun because every once in a while cases could get pretty controversial. And I found my pleadings in Eli Lilly being quoted on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Um, and I hadn't had to run that by the minister. They were really saying, get on with the case. Oh, that's great. On that note, they they were talking on the previous panel about the fact that so few investor state cases are settled, simply because most states prefer not to settle a case. It was even said that I'd rather lose a case than settle a case. What has been your experience in that regard? Did you did you always go all the way <laughs> rather than settle? I think it very much depends on the case. And I, as I was just saying to um, Paolo Di Rosa in the, the session that's just finished, uh, I think it depends on the government and the position they're in. Um, for Canada, we really were assessing the cases on a case-by-case basis. So the Abitibi Bowater case, for example, was one which the Canadian government settled. Uh, because in that case, the provincial government measure was something called an act to expropriate certain you know, <laughs> property of Abitibi Bowater, which in litigation terms is what you would call a bummer. There's not too much one can do. And so that case was settled to the tune of $130 million because there were substantial assets that had been um, taken by the provincial government. And then how how many entities uh, had to sign off on that in order to to get that settlement through within the government? Well, I think it was a combination. It would have been the the Department of Foreign Affairs. It would have been, I I can't remember exactly how many, but it would have been in dialogue with the province as well. Um, But that's that's a case where it's clear-cut, yes, you know, that shouldn't have happened, let's settle it. 
I would have to say many of the others uh, were not settled precisely for the reason that the government felt the case should be brought in the first place. They felt that the case was an abuse of the international investment system. When you have an investor coming along and saying that we are dissatisfied with the invalidation of certain pharmaceutical patents by your federal court through sort of full-blown trials, and we admit they're not denial of justice, but we're just dissatisfied and we think that this is contrary to our international intellectual property obligations, so we're going to sue you under NAFTA and give us, you know, half a billion dollars. The response to the gov of the government to that is no. Uh, we're going to defend that vigorously, and we did defend that vigorously, and, uh, you know, they were, uh, we were completely vindicated and got millions of dollars in costs. Same thing for a case like Kemptura, where the claimant comes along saying, well, we were producing a pesticide and um, you've declared it unsafe, but we think that was done for discriminatory reasons and um, so we should be compensated for having taken that pesticide from public use. We say, oh, actually, there was that thing about us signing to, up to the Stockholm Convention on this, you know, the elimination of these kinds of pesticides and we actually applied the test that we applied to all pesticides to determine whether they're safe and it came up that your product is unsafe and under the International Doctrine of Police Powers, that does not constitute an expropriation. So, sorry. And, you know, again, we fought that all the way through and again achieved millions of dollars of cost. So it very much depends upon the case and uh, you know one has the privilege of being able to make those determinations um, with uh, a sophisticated government. Now in other cases it is uh, true that it is very difficult for government officials to settle the case in many parts of the world where if they do so um, they'll be told, or someone will say, oh, it's because there was money that was passed under the table, or, you know, you just mishandled it, or whatever. So they would actually prefer to have the international tribunal decide the case, even if, if it means the state loses, because it means they don't have to wear it. Right. You pass it on to an international body mm. rather than doing it. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you something that is admittedly somewhat specific, and partly because I'm interested in it myself. I know there have been a few set-asides, uh, proceedings in domestic courts, mm -hmm. and, and cases involving Canada. And of course, that is always a potential issue, generally, in, in, in arbitration and investment arbitration, maybe even more so. Do you have any experience in that type of scenario in which you have to either challenge an award or defend an award before a domestic court as opposed to, to a tribunal? Because most NAFTA cases, of course, are or up until very recently have all been non-exit cases, so they've right. all been seated in either the United States or Canada, typically. Right. Uh, well, the one case in which I had direct experience was the Cargill matter, uh, which was a, an award against Mexico, um, and in that case, unusually, the tribunal awarded uh, damages not only for the losses that have been suffered by Cargill to Mexico, Cargill being a U.S. company investing in uh, the production of high fructose corn syrup that was sold on it to Mexico, the, um, a measure was taken by the Mexican government that affected that business and um, the tribunal awarded damages not only to the distribution facility in Mexico but also yeah, to upstream. the production mm -hmm. facility upstream in the United States. And all three NAFTA parties took the position that those latter damages were beyond the jurisdiction of the tribunal to award because they were not um, damages that were suffered by Cargill in its capacity as an investor, but rather as a cross-border trader and services. 
Um, and that was jurisdictional because... Uh, and you took that position also in domestic court, right? We took, well, the reason I'm re saying that is precisely because the set-aside was with regard to that aspect of the award. Um, and it was before the court in Ontario. It went to the um, first Superior Court and then to the Court of Appeal. Um, and the interesting thing is that the Ontario courts are so um, careful about, uh, and rightly so, um, trying to uphold the jurisdiction of international arbitration tribunals, including investment arbitration tribunals, that despite the fact they had all three NAFTA state parties actually literally pleading in front of them, this is what we uh, believe to be the case, we think this is outside the jurisdiction, the tribunal felt that there wasn't sufficient unanimity on the part of those three parties to constitute a subsequent agreement mm. um, for purposes of the Vienna Convention, the law of treaties, um, and so upheld the award. Um, so that was my experience, which was one of actually the courts being quite robust in their uh, approach. Now the other experience in Canadian courts, which um, most will know is, and this goes back a long time, to the metal clad decision, where the tribunal in that case, and this is before the note of interpretation of 2001 saying that fair and equitable treatment means the customary international, but in any event, the um, tribunal there had said um, that there was an obligation of transparency arising out of the fair and equitable treatment obligation, minimum standard of treatment under Article 1105 of NAFTA. And the court in that case, um, the, it was the British Columbia Supreme Court, found that that aspect of the award was outside of its jurisdiction. And oh my goodness, the heavens fell upon that court for having dared to you know, criticize a, a decision. It was, I think, for a very long time the only oh partially set-aside award. Yeah, in yeah. yeah. And, it, and of course, it didn't stop arbitral tribunals from cheerfully quoting to that part of the medical award for years to come, <laughs> but um, in any event. So, but more typically, um, the experience, at least in uh, Canadian courts, is that they are very cautious to set aside awards. And there have been attempts at um, setting aside, I think that arose out of the Bill Con Award and, and that wasn't successful. And, and the interesting thing is that in the context of certainly NAFTA cases, there, as you say, we only recently joined um, the ICSID Convention, surprisingly, but it was a kind of political thing. We finally joined it, but before that many of the cases were unsuitable. So there were typically in NAFTA cases was a, a fight at the beginning about what's the seat of the arbitration. Yeah, and you already hinted at that because even within Canada, different courts and different provincial jurisdictions might come into play depending on if the seat is in, in Toronto or in, yeah. in Vancouver. Or well, exactly. You would go to the court of, you know, the Ontario court, you would go to the Quebec court or whichever because it's uh, divided along provincial lines. And if you, if you are comfortable or even recall, what, what, how, how were the discussions in that scenario where you have, I think NAFTA provides that the state has to be in a NAFTA state, mm -hmm. and that's pretty much all the guidance that the tribunal is given, and then the disputing parties basically have to, right. to, to fight over this. Yeah, it's usually something that shows up in the first procedural hearing, and it would show up as a, a matter of course, because um, the, as the state, um, one would take the position on a basis of principle that, look, if this matter is taking place in Ontario, all the documents are here, you know, for the convenience of the parties, and, and acknowledging there's a difference between the legal seat and the place where the proceedings go on, but um, it was more with regard to um, the compelability of documents, and therefore one should have local court jurisdiction, that the seat should be here, and, and that 
look at the record of Canadian courts on, on the set aside of decisions, it's it's actually very robust in favor of arbitral tribunals. So this notion of uh, you know there being some sort of uh, apprehension of, of the award being set aside or of the government affecting the courts is is completely and then the avoid. the U.S. Not investor issue. would say the exact same thing about the U.S. and then the tribunal would have to yeah, <laughs> figure so out a way in this binary. Tri- tri- tribunals would tend to. Uh, Say well, we we don't at all question the um, you know independence of the court or the vigor of their decisions about review, but and and find some reason um, it wasn't always outside of Canada. But it, the interesting thing was that oftentimes they would say, well, um, Washington D.C. should be the seat because it's independent because that's where the World Bank was. Forgetting the fact that that is also where the U.S. government happens to be. I wanted to just pick up on something that you said before about the police powers with the pesticide. I have just been reading a bunch of awards, and I think the standard of police powers is changing. And I wanted to know if you saw that throughout your time working, but also now that you're at council and having to apply the police powers maybe in a different context, um, if you see this doctrine being misapplied or if it's creating or it's being given a new definition. Hmm. I'm not sure. I mean, the case that I was referring to about pesticides is Kemptura, and that's usually cited as one of the key cases mm-hmm. for the uh, assertion of the police powers doctrine. Um, the tribunal, in relation to expropriation, came out with a very robust uh, statement, and it was a, a very powerful tribunal. I mean, we had Gabrielle Kaufman Kohler as the chair, and then um, Charles Brower, and um, then um, uh, Crawford uh, as the third. So uh, that was my first tribunal arriving at the government of Canada. <laughs> um, and I'm, I mean, actually, you know, it was great to have convinced Judge Brower to completely throw out this case and award Canada millions of dollars of costs, <laughs> by the way. But um, on the issue of police powers, there was, that, you know, in general, when the government is acting um, on the basis of a good faith regulatory um decision, scientific decision in favor of human health, in favor of the environment, that uh, that doesn't constitute an indirect expropriation. I'm so not that sure what you case... wouldn't even get an expropriation, that's my question. Yeah, no, that's not an expropriation. I mean, that's that's the nature of the police powers. First, the threshold question is usually, is there a substantial taking? Mm. Um, and there, usually, the fight is that the claimant is trying to parse its investment to say, well, okay, we have an investment of 100 units, say, in, in, in Canada, but um, you have uh, expropriated 100% of two units of my investment. So there's been a substantial taking because you took both of my patents, uh, even though I have a range of other investments. And so that the first level is whether or not there's been a substantial taking. And then if you get past that hurdle, then you start considering, well, what's the regulatory context? What was the motivation for the measure? What were the expectations of the investor in this particular area? And the sort of classic doctrine is that if you have taken a good faith regulatory measure for protection of human health, the environment, uh, among other things, that that would not constitute an indirect expropriation. Even though there was a taking. Well, but th- what do you mean by a taking? Because right, exactly. I, that's, the, that's the, the, the there's, there's often confusion about this. I mean, if you take that Santa Elena case, that case... That's what I was referring to. That <laughs> case, well, I thought you might... But that mm-hmm. case was dealing with the direct expropriation mm-hmm. of a piece of property. And 
there was no dispute about there having an expropriation having occurred. The whole dispute was about what is the level of compensation. Right. Uh, but they weren't. It wasn't that they weren't going to compensate. It was about the level of compensation. That's a very different situation from an indirect expropriation, where you are saying, look, you've been able to sell this product on a market, for example. But it's always been on sufferance that as long as the minister continues to believe the sale of that product is safe, sure, go ahead. But as soon as the minister changes his or her mind because science has advanced or you know, public perception of what is and isn't safe has changed, well, that will be withdrawn from the market and you don't get compensated for that. Right. That's, you know, so the Santa Elena situation is quite different because that is, we are actually directly taking your property and yes, we have to pay you for that. Even if the goal of that taking is to create an environmental reserve, mm. for example. Mm. I mean, I had a very interesting case uh, on behalf of Barbados a couple of years ago um, in which um, I, the investor was complaining that the government had not done enough to protect the environment. That's the Allard. Yeah, yeah. Allard, yeah, where you know, he had purchased a uh, sort of wetland property on the west coast of Barbados with the intention of turning it into an eco-reserve, and it turned out to be a failed business venture. It turned out people, when they got off a ship in Barbados, didn't really want to go to see a, a swamp. I don't, I don't know why. I, I think it's actually a very interesting site, uh, but in any event, it was a failed business venture, and he decided that, well... Um, it's because the government hadn't done enough to protect the environment in that area and they should have done more and la la la. So we had to actually, you know, demonstrate that the government had been engaged in the protection of the site. They were seeking to uphold the responsibilities under the, the Ramsar Convention um, and that, you know, his sort of uh, th theory did not stand up to the facts. And I mean, the case again was dismissed and we got millions of dollars of costs, fine. But there was a case where, uh, ironically, uh, the investor was saying, you, you haven't done enough to protect the environment. Right. How, I mean, I imagine Canada to be like the dream client if you're representing a state. How, how, are there different, you've represented very different types of government. Nigeria. Exactly. Croatia. So are there, I mean, you talked about it in the very beginning of this interview that there's certain, you really, if you're representing a state, you got to get into the nuts and bolts of how that government operates in order sure. to understand how to represent them. Sure. Is there a process you take if you're representing an entirely new state to say, okay, well, we need to have a government, you know, a site visit, basically? Or how would you, representing a state for the first time or a new type of state, how would you go about figuring all that out? Well, you have to understand their process and you have to be very respectful of their process and you take a look at how they manage the claims uh, internally or have been doing that and you can make suggestions about you know, the need to have a point person to need to understand uh, the decision-making structure within the government. I mean, it's one advantage that I have of having been within a exactly. government for a number of years is I know the kind of constraints they're under. I know that if we want to hire an expert, we can't just sort of bang high the expert that we're going to have to go through. We may have to go through some sort of quasi-procurement process for that. There are going to be levels of decision-making, so you have to factor that into your time. And a lot of it is also vis-a-vis -vis the tribunal saying, actually, that timeline is not going to work for us for this arbitration because for document production, for example, you know, t telling us a government that it has two weeks to collect the documents relating to a matter that took place over a five-year period, good luck. It's just mm -hmm. not going to happen. If you want to have meaningful document production, you have to factor in more time. And, and so, yeah, you have to understand how they function and try to make suggestions, understand what are the constraints that are going to be placed upon them, um, and uh, 
try to help them as they go through that claim to build their own capacity. I think it is time for us to thank you very much for you. for being here with us and uh, let you back out to the Ica party. <laughs> to the wolves. <laughs> exactly. Oh, thank wow. you so much. Thank you. So thank you for being here, Stavros. We managed to to sit down with you. We've been chasing you for for days. It feels like a Ica. Oh, You're a busy man. Sorry. It is 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 the the Ica conference. So you know it's full, uh, full on, and uh, you <laughs> run from one uh, thing to another. But thank you for organizing the. I'm delighted. So, to so be you part. you spoke on a panel, or actually you moderated a panel, and didn't get to speak that much. So maybe now you will get the opportunity to. Yeah, yeah exactly. Thank you. <laughs> About public private arbitration. Uh, yes, I think there's a, a blind spot, both in the literature review, but also in the legislation. Uh, we tend to, to divide law into separate and within uh, neat fields, commercial law and public law. So whatever is not under public international law, including investment arbitration, tends to be squeezed in commercial law. But reality is different because there's a middle ground between public and private that cannot be captured by the divide that we have come to agree to. And this common ground is contracts that I signed between private parties and public entities or the state for the provision of important um, uh, goods, public goods, including health, safety, um, and incorporation of other important governmental policies. Take the example of big concession and infrastructure projects. Uh, you have a public entity that agrees with a state or a state entity to build a hospital. This is not only important because it's a big and complex construction project, it is also important because if it is not implemented, then it will have an important serious effect on a key governmental policy, which will have an impact on the lives of thousands of people. This public interest that is implicated in this type of disputes cannot be protected, accounted for, and captured by a contractual paradigm. And we tend to treat these kind of contracts as contractual. Not only we treat the contracts as contractual, but if a dispute arises out of it, and it ends up in arbitration, the paradigm that this arbitration is conducted under is contractual. And are you saying that's insufficient to cover... It is absolutely insufficient, and I'll come back to that to explain why. But before I do that, if I may, I think it's important to note that this kind of contracts were not inambutants as are currently. In the last 40 years, there has been a massive privatization project especially in every now industrialized country. And that's one uh, point. And the second point is that 
with a collapse of arbitrability, the doctrine of non-arbitrability, now a large number of contracts that used to be non-arbitrable and a number of disputes that used to be exclusively submitted to national courts now can be submitted to arbitration. So even disputes that implicate public policy and public interest now can be submitted to arbitration. That is why a large number of these type of contracts now favor dispute resolution by arbitration. Many FIDIC contracts that are standard contracts uh, of concession and big infrastructure for any major infrastructure project that is financed by the EU or the, uh, the World Bank include arbitration as a standard provision at the end. So what you have in the last 40 years, you have a, an increasing number of disputes of this type of nature that involve and implicate public policy and public in, the public interest, uh, more importantly, that end up in arbitration. Now, how do we treat these arbitrations? As I said, because these arbitra arbitrations are not classified as public. Why? Because we tend to say that the state or the state entity in this case does not act as jury in peri, whatever that, mean, uh, that term means. <laughs> so it should be a contractual contract. If it's a contractual contract, it takes place and is conducted under, in England, English Arbitration Act, under a contractual paradigm. In this contractual paradigm, rules of confidentiality apply. The extent of the review of the ensuing arbitral award is very, very limited, if at all. And there is no review as to whether the tribunal has accounted for, has looked into and eventually protected the public interest that's implicated in these disputes. To give a, 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 an example of that, in England, we had um, some time ago the very well-known case, which is called the e-borders case. Now, that was a contract between um, the UK government and a US contractor for the construction, the implementation, and construct, the development and implementation of uh, an electronic uh, system that would be implemented in all UK airports to monitor. Uh, the entrance uh, of uh, migrants. For some reason that we don't know, this contract went wrong. There was a provision for arbitration under the LCIA, the dispute was referred to the LCIA, and that's all we know about the dispute. The next thing that we know is that the tribunal ruled in favor of the uh, US contractor although it was the UK government that had actually terminated the contract, again, for reasons that we don't know, and awarded damages against the UK government um, at the amount of uh, close to £200 million. Pounds. Although the award was challenged and eventually set aside, at the end, the UK government agreed to settle the award, again, for a substantial amount of, of money. And so the public media was wondering what happened to this dispute, what went wrong in the first place to the contract, who were the people that decided, under which law. 
whether there was an illegal um, liability for the UK government and who was responsible for the decisions that um, were taken for the contract that went wrong. Why should the taxpayer uh, be subject to the substantial amount of money? We don't know what law was applicable and we don't know why the contract was terminated eventually. A huge confidentiality uh, applied that. I've, um, I've asked also to the LCIA and usually the LCIA they have a number of different councils dealing with cases because they have, if, you, if you have a dispute with the LCIA it's one uh, only and the same uh, email account and all communication goes to the same account and different councils have different access to it. For this case there were only two people classified to enter the, uh, the account for the LCIA. Really? Absolutely. No one in the LCIA except um, uh, the Secretary General at the time and the, the, uh, the council, a senior council that was assigned to deal with the case. Not even the LCIA had the um, liberty to... Did, did they explain why? Did it was classified it? material. Then that raises sort of the devil's advocate argument that the dogmatic arbitration lawyer would probably cling to, which is if, if the state is agreeing to this in, in a contract we have to presume the state being the state that the state knows or the public entity knows what they're doing and they prefer to do this and they are acting in capacity as a representative on on behalf of all of us and that's absolutely right except that the state is subject to specific mandatory rules of administrative law that call for transparency the state cannot put themselves there's basic administrative law rules that uh, says that, that say that um, the state cannot put itself in a position where it cannot apply any transparency rules and it cannot uh, waive its right to terminate a contract even if the contract is not anymore in the public interest. So unless the state puts itself in this position and we need to know who took the decision for the confidentiality. There is, a, of course, an interesting corollary here because you are speaking exclusively in, in sort of a commercial arbitration box, uh, it, it seems, and the, the article is based on that as well. But also in investment arbitration, there is a, a parallel discussion to be had with several significant scholars are also arguing that a public law paradigm is, should be helpful, at least in understanding, because in that role, by definition, the state is doing similar things to what you are describing, Absolutely. of course. And, and the, the whole difference is that you've seen an advance in the argument in the context of investment arbitration, but you haven't seen the similar advance in the context of this type of public-private arbitrations. That's why I said from the very beginning there's a blind spot, not only for the um, uh, legal framework, but also in the literature. And that was the main purpose of the article in the first place, uh, to somehow just um, try to, um, um, to cover this uh, blind spot. We have seen now in investment treaty contexts the advance of the Mauritius Treaty, which has been a great, um, uh, a great, uh, a great significant um, a treaty. We don't see the same in um, in the context of uh, national law. Why? We don't see that because this is not a matter of international treaty, but it's a matter of national law. And different laws, including the UK, take the. Um, uh, the, the approach that these are contractual matters, have nothing to do with public law and should be treated as contractual. The other thing 
uh, except for confidentiality that's important, is the level of the review of the award at the end. Again, let's take the example of the UK Arbitration Act, 1996 anyway. The grounds to review the award are very limited, especially in the UK, unless uh, Section 67 applies, which allows for an appeal on the point of law. The review is very, very superficial, as it should be in any contractual case. But I'm not sure that this kind of review is the, the, the right approach for this kind of arbitrations that implicate the public interest. Uh, there's only review for the purpose of, the pub of um, public policy, if the tribunal has violated public policy. But the legal construct of public policy is very, very different from the term and the legal construct, the legal idea, the concept of public interest. The latter is much broader. Public policy is uh, a technical, eventually, term that is defined and determined um, in English law uh, and has nothing to do with the broad uh, meaning of the public interest. So eventually, this mismatch between public policy, which can be reviewed uh, under, uh, by uh, English courts, and the public interest, which is what should be the, the general welfare of the public taxpayers, is not accounted for. Now, in the in the um, in the article, um, I make the recommendation that, especially for this kind of disputes, um, the English Arbitration Act should change, should be amended. And there has been a decision, there has been discussion rather about the amendment of the English Arbitration Act lately. Uh, and I have given my views to the committee that uh, looks into this. Um, uh, into the amendment. I'm not sure they will accept my position, uh, but I think it will be a missed opportunity not to look into these kind of contracts, not to discuss about public-private uh, arbitration and how we may be able to account and protect the public interest uh, much better than we do currently. But would the legislation have to characterize certain types of contracts or certain types of industries and then legislate around that? And I think that's a very, very good question. I don't think it's a matter of characterization from the very beginning. You can say that when a public entity is implicated in this dispute or a contract in the first place, it is a red flag. Mm -hmm. right? We need to look into whether the provision of the, um, of the contract uh, refers to matters that uh, are uh, of public uh, interest. Clearly a contract, like the Rython or the e-borders that I referred to, implicated important governmental policies. Uh, again, I mentioned the example of um, uh, the construction of um, a hospital. That's clearly a matter that has to do with the public interest. Um, the privatization of uh, water, privatization of energy, privatization of security in uh, prisons. You know, all these contracts are not typical contractual contracts. Yes, they have a clear contractual aspect, probably the predominant one, but they are certainly a very distinct aspect of these contracts that implicates public interest, and this is currently unaccounted for. 
The only thing I know about this is that this warning that I have in the back of my head when discussing public-private arbitration, which is that France is different. That's the only like lawyer's warning I have. I think you mentioned this in the article as well. There is something, and I, of course, don't even know the details, but maybe you can <laughs> educate me if, if you yeah. do, where you, where you have these disputes with public bodies in France. The situation is very different from in most other uh, arbitration jurisdictions. You're absolutely right. And the reason for that is that France has a very developed administrative law. Now, in France, again, that matter was debated. It wasn't clear-cut, but there's reason a jurisprudence of the Court of Cassation and uh, the Court of Conflicts, uh, which decides between any conflict uh, between um, uh, the Superior Administrative Court in France and the Superior um, Civil Law, that said that a contract that implicated the public policy, if, this a dispute, if any dispute arises out of this contract, should be reviewed not by um, the Supreme Court, at the highest administrative court, because this contract and this arbitration, therefore, is classified as implicating the public interest, and that's a matter for administrative law uh, and administrative courts to decide. And the review by the administrative courts is much different. Goes into the substance, decides whether specific mandatory uh, laws, French mandatory rules specifically, uh, apply and have been applied correctly by the tribunal uh, to protect public interest. The difference between the France, and you're right to point out, as I said, is that France has a, a very developed um, administrative law. This is not the case in the, U uh, in the UK, for example. In the UK, um, there hasn't been the concept of administrative law until uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, the, the, this Reichstag or this uh, public order, uh, public uh, uh, interest in uh, the UK was always to be protected by the rule of law. The rule of law is a completely different uh, concept from administration right. and administrative law. Uh, only very recently some types of admi uh, administrative courts have been developed but again, their, um, their approach, their powers, um, their aim is very, very different and much more restricted than it is in, in France, for example. You have a, a lot of potential here to, to, to branch this out as well and look comparatively at jurisdiction because I would imagine this is something where you see somewhat different approaches and Absolutely. it touches so much, as you say, on, on the legal culture of the jurisdiction in question. I think several civil law jurisdictions similar to France also have a, a more developed and structured administrative law Absolutely. tradition. Absolutely. Would it be the case, I mean, let's say you have a contract that is not within one of these, you know, uh, flagged areas of public, private, or public interest. So you, it's not necessarily the provision of water, it's more just an irrigation system, let's say. Um, but the breach or the obligations so you have a state actor acting in a commercial context, but then the breach or the obligations are changed based off something that happens in the public interest. What comes to mind is like an Arab Spring type of situation. Would that still fall under this public-private dichotomy, or would it, would it be something different? I think you're absolutely right. Any development that comes as a matter of change in the political sphere yeah. and affects a public contract, at some point 
means that the contract needs to be reviewed differently than a pure contractual contract. It is in its basic nature a contractual contract, fine. But if it implicates a broader public interest, if there's a reason that the new government, or you mentioned the Arab Spring, or the revolutionary government, uh, comes in and says, well, from now on, all these type of contracts will be terminated. It will be the state that will administer these kind of provisions. For better or worse, I'm not deciding that, but if an elected or revolutionary government comes in, that implicates the contract by definition, and the nature of the contract being a contract, it's not the same. Right. I I, I agree. I remember reading some of these cases and being like, how are we, as arbitral tribunals, able, that we, I'm not a tribunal, but able (laughs) to decide on these type of these type of cases and to consider these type of political... We, we soon have to let you go, my friend Stavros, but I want to ask right, you, at least on my behalf, a final question, and that is, as you've been speaking and writing on this for, for a few years now, yeah. what has been the reception in the arbitration community? We had it, That's a very good question. As I say, um, the, U, the UK Commission, the Law Commission, that looks into the amendment of the... Um, 1996 uh, Arbitration Act organized a panel discussion and invited um, key stakeholders uh, to discuss this. Um, it wasn't a, a big group, we were 25-30 people, uh, eminent arbitrators, academics, um, governmental officials, and we all had the opportunity to discuss that. And I introduced my idea, I, I introduced my views. Um, and there was a lively debate. <laughs> uh, I can't say that I, I was in the majority, but I think there were many people that um, saw the point and agreed. And it's fair to say that everyone in principle was in agreement. I think their concerns and questions are close to what Brian said, how can in practice distinguish between what is a contract that implicates public interest and what it's not. And if it's not clear-cut as a matter of legislation, we don't want this to be left to someone to decide on an ad hoc basis because it will create confusion and will probably mean that there will be no consistency in the decisions. And I agree and I accept that. But the same problem exists in administrative law. And what kind of contracts be taken by um, implicating um, a state entity are characterized as administrative contracts or contractual contracts. And there's dogma there. There's, uh, there are cases that we can follow. They're not arbitration cases, they're on, from a different uh, field, but they could be used as a guideline to, um, uh, to solve this issue. Uh, but I have to say, I, I see uh, the argument that it's not a clear cut distinction always. And, and might be some room for interpretation. Mm. Although I don't think you know we need to be afraid of uh, just uh, taking the decision on ad hoc basis. Right. Thank you so oh, thank much you. for yeah, this. It's been, been a pleasure. pleasure. Like, as I say, I, I um, I've been, as you say, I've been um, looking to these matters for a number of years now, and I think um, there's a lot of potential for more research and more discussion and more. Uh, engagement with um, with the public about that. 
for the simple reason that arbitration has been under attack for many, many years. Yes, the main point of contention is investment arbitration, but this type of public-private uh, contracts will also give rise to concerns to the public. The e-borders was in the newspapers and it was the subject of a couple of discussions in the UK Parliament. If we allow these contracts to get out of hand, to not be protected, uh, then criticism against arbitration will mount and eventually uh, it will be it will lead to the decisions like the UK, the uh, the EU decision um, to take arbitration out of the of the public domain. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you. We are sitting here with Susan Frank at the ICA Sydney, and we are so happy to have you, me personally, uh, because she is faculty at American University Washington College of Law. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. So um, before we launch into what we have planned for today, I just want to talk about the university and how you got involved at WCL and where you came from before that. Oh, happy to do that. So I actually started my academic career at my home institution at the University of Minnesota, bounced around a couple of places, including uh, the University of Nebraska, largely because of its law and psychology program. So it was fantastic to be able to hone my quantitative skills in that venue. But then, you know, you're always kind of trying to think, what can I do that makes my life more interesting and adds more value to people? So I ended up going to Washington and Lee University and thoroughly enjoyed my time there. But when the opportunity to join the Arbitration Center at American University in DC, which is the hub of of investment arbitration came to the <laughs> fore. It was very, very, very difficult to say no. I, you know, it's something that's come up recently, especially in American universities, to have a center or an arbitration center mm -hmm. affiliated with the university. It's not just American that has this, right? There's no, other. it's not, but American was the first. I mean, this is the thing is people don't understand, or maybe they do understand, <laughs> we just need to promote it a little bit more. American University was, I think, the first law school in the country to actually have a center on international commercial arbitration. So the previous dean and his very good strategic thinking said, let's create this program. And they were smart enough to bring on Horacio Neon, mm -hmm. who is an Argentine national, but is probably well known to various podcast listeners as an international arbitrator. Uh, he's also previously been a member of the Academic Council for the Institute of Transnational Arbitration. He's a fantastic colleague because he can just pick up the phone and people will come, right? Yeah, and, exactly. and, and the value of that is that we're then bringing the international arbitration community into DC, into American University, and the students get to benefit from it. So they can see that it's not just about law in theory, it's about law in practice. And I love it when I have the chance to interview my students and get them connected to other people. So it's just fantastic that we have that, that center. And, and believe it or not, before I decided to move to AU, I talked to a variety of international arbitration practitioners. And I said, look, here are the options. Here's what I'm thinking about in my life. And hands down, they said, you really need to go to American because that center is top of the line. And when you have that kind of an endorsement, it, again, it's very hard to yeah. say now. Is it still like a separate building from the... 
No, I, I, I don't move. know if you knew, but like a year and a half ago, Dean Grossman, as he was then, opened up American University. And it's this beautiful building. We actually just won an award. And uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because it is that light and beautiful. Ruth Bader Ginsburg came and did the opening. I mean, you can imagine everybody who was who anybody in D.C. and all of our students were able to come to this opening. And she kind of did the ribbon cutting. And it was just Really, really a pleasure. Yeah. So I'm actually also chair of the technology committee. And so part of what we're doing now, because we have a state-of-the-art building, is figuring out how can we make sure the technology that we have, the hardware, the software, the online materials are used to kind of teach the law students today so that they can be the technologically savvy lawyers of tomorrow. Right. You feeling nostalgia, Brian? Yes. <laughs> well, I, actually, this is a bit lame. I went back to Washington, <laughs> D.C. and like did a little tour, walked around the new campus and was just like, like, pushing my face up against the window because <laughs> I didn't have that. We had this really old bank that like didn't have Wi-Fi and then they moved it over right after we graduated and it's it's yeah, been really it's good for the university actually. Yeah, it happened. But so you, we were talking before, before we started recording that you know you have uh, a course that you just got pushed through that's going to talk about hot topics in arbitration and one hot topic we can talk about and what we want to talk to you about is the uh, costs in arbitration right. and you have an article written in the law review called rationalizing costs in international arbitration. yes and actually that was what I would think of as first generation work mm -hmm. uh, but I actually have a book coming out uh, if everything goes well with the summer writing uh, <laughs> with Oxford University Press related to costs and investment arbitration that kind of expands the data set and tries to say, hey, you know, here's what we thought we knew before. What do we still know with the data? But one of the things I'm really particularly proud about is I've actually started modeling costs to try to figure out what are the variables that are actually reliably influencing costs. Because folks like to talk about trends and bless their hearts, that's fine. Right. But a trend could just be statistical noise. It could be no better than chance alone. And if I'm going to have to suggest to my students, this is what's true, or if somebody was advising a client to say, here's what you should rely on. I don't want to rely on chance. I want to rely on data that sticks. So I was really excited to kind of try to push around some of the variables to see what we could find in light of what was publicly available in the investment arbitration awards. And you looked at every publicly available award when they within this frame set of yes, within the data set of, of the time period. Now, mind you, you know it closed at a particular date around 2012, 2013, and things have moved on. But what's been really interesting uh, here at ICA, I chaired a panel that was on costs and equality of arms and access to justice in international arbitration. And one of the speakers, Kate Brown Vehar, was talking about some of the research created by a practitioner, Matthew Hodson. And it just does so happen that actually his research is matching mine. And so while he is actually saying, here's what I think we're finding, and bless it, you know, he's doing a really good job as a practitioner. But when you're looking for trends, because you're trying to advise clients on what's hot, he, you know, you're not taking the same systematic view and saying, and now I'm going to test using statistical science processes. So what's quite cool about it is now we can say within a degree of certainty, X is what we think is probabilistically true. We're 95% sure that this is real and it's not just a flash in the pan because clients need to be able to predict these costs because they are not insubstantial. And they might need to be able to, for example, control them or think, this is the cost of arbitration. Is there something I want to carve out so I don't have to make it quite so expensive? Right. Or are there other processes that we might be able to use? Or 
I want to make sure that clients have the capacity to make good informed choices in light of the economic uncertainty that they could face. And one of the Ika highlights, I think, was walking into the Sydney Opera House and we didn't even, we hadn't even met yet. And then we just got into, launched into this discussion on costs. And something you said right then and there was that this needs to be brought up first or something that like an initial consideration. Yeah. I mean, this is something that I had that I've been talking about for a long time. And I think that it's starting to gain a little bit of traction now, particularly because this is getting flagged in some of the rule revisions at ICA. So I'm very, not ICA, but at ICSID, I'm sorry. Uh, But I I think that the time has come to think about this. So, and I remember writing this in the WashU article about costs, where I said like, look, if we've got like maybe, I'm just trying to remember, like less than 10% of the awards trying to address costs at anything other than the final stage after all the submissions are in, we've lost an opportunity. We've lost an opportunity to inform the parties about what are the criteria that the tribunals are thinking about in terms of how they may assess costs, the the conduct that they may find particularly pernicious or particularly worthy of rewarding. And if you're not giving somebody a signal on something that's as potentially economically significant as cost, which could in theory be 40% of an average award. I mean, that to me is something that is a real opportunity loser as opposed to a value gainer. And I would really like to see uh, tribunals get a little bit more active on that regard. Now, it's hard to do if you don't have a baseline. So the value of some of the ICSID reform is saying, when, when should tribunals be resolving costs and can we prioritize that at an earlier stage? So just to give a little peek into the book, for example, that that same finding that I'd seen from the like 2006 data, that's still sticking around. Tribunals still are relatively reluctant to move early on costs which means you have all of these opportunities to provide a signal, an incentive, a nudge, and we're just not doing it. Mm -hmm. And I can understand from a tribunal's perspective, you don't want to go too far lest you be challenged or upset the party or potentially endanger the award. I mean, and all of those are structural problems and they're, they're real. In which case, then provide a structural incentive by providing an opportunity to say, here's the rules of the road. Tribunals have discretion to do X and Y, but this is what we're trying to prioritize. And I see no problem problem with that and actually a lot of potential value that could minimize some of the critiques of the system. Mm-hmm. What is the, the elevator pitch in terms of the baseline and the content? And I realize yeah. it might be very hard to summarize a, a book. <laughs> in terms of deciding early, yeah. provide incentives to the party and safeguard your own discretion if you're an arbitrator, right? In terms of the parties, like get a signal early and often about the potential cost implications so you and the, the stakeholders behind you can make better decisions about the cost of investment dispute settlement. I mean, that's that's what I would like to see. I mean, General Electric has a really interesting process. Uh, they call it dispute systems design. I mean, this is something that the arbitration community doesn't normally think about because it's kind of a, a related literature. It's not direct to arbitration. But the idea in dispute systems design, and they're engineers, so this is why it particularly works for General Electric, uh, is, you know, you look at a problem and you decide that a problem that you find is not necessarily 
value destroying, it's an opportunity to improve. So you do an assessment of what's going on with the problem and then you take a view, is there a way that we can implement a change that doesn't require us to fight or can we negotiate or we, can we mediate or can we use some commercial pressure? And then you take, a, you take a staged approach to managing the conflict. And so there's actually cost assessments at every stage. I think there's about three or four when they're notified of a dispute. So even if you're in a kind of a further phase of the arbitration proceedings under kind of a dispute systems design model, you might be able to either slice off a part of the dispute or get more information about the cost to readjust what your cost, right. your, you know, your cost benefit calculus is. And if you don't have information, you can't do it. You're shooting blind. And at that point, why should somebody settle? Why should somebody mediate? Because they have no idea of the fiscal implications. Well, and they think it's just par for the course. They're like, well, I have to do this if I want this baseline justice. Mm -hmm. And so the, especially as counsel, you're just like, well, we need to do this because they're doing it or the tribunal doesn't insert themselves. Exactly. And it's path dependence. And then there's this element of if you do something differently, are you setting yourself up to, again, to either be challenged if you're an arbitrator or indeed render the party's award potentially null and void? And that's not anything that's of value because then you've spent, you know, 15, 20 million dollars and you You've got an award that's useless and that's not in anybody's interest so this is part of the reason why if we're kind of trying to create structural incentives there's a lot of net value to this system you look you look at investment arbitration cost and investment arbitration mm-hmm. i guess as opposed to commercial arbitration i I'm, wish i could look yeah at i'm guessing that's partially because of the availability of, of the of the data but it, is there something to be said for the fact that there is also by definition a state involved in every investment dispute does that sort of alter the cost calculus because they of course are typically less eager to mediate or settle has been talked they about may that. or they may not i mean mediation is a little bit of i say it with a degree of trepidation it's potentially a rising trend right so i had actually back in 2010 when i was still at washington and, and lee created i think the very first public forum ever to talk about alternative dispute resolution and investment law. I thought of it like as a bringing together on a blind date the alternative dispute resolution community and the international arbitration and investment <laughs> community. And it was a it's you know it's still a work in progress, but there we started talking about what's the role of mediation or what could be the role of expert determination. And states were actually said, you know, part of the reason we're nervous about this is nobody's done it before. This is, again, part of the path dependency. So it's not as if it's a bad idea. It's just that if you're a state and you're talking about a process that isn't tried and tested, you have a lot of explaining to do at home. Businesses have the same sorts of problems and incentives, but people might be a little bit more willing to roll the dice. Uh, But for states, I I do think that they were worried about, I want to make sure I don't think outside the box too much or subject the state to a problem. And they have to think about the creation of public international law norms. I mean, they can't can't just (laughs) shoot from the hip. They have to be careful. So this is actually part of the reason why the International Bar Association created mediation rules for investment treaty arbitration. So some of the people that I brought to Lexington were able to participate in that process, including Anna Jobin Brett, Maria Hernandez Grespo. And so they started to create guidelines. So the idea is if states want to use mediation to maybe make arbitration more effective, then there are rules that they can rely on to help make the process easier. And my understanding, I was at a conference probably about a year ago at Columbia, and it was a ICDR AAA event as well. And 
I think it was, there was an arbitrator who was well known. I don't, and he basically said, I've been doing a lot of mediations. And he was said, you know, that he was aware of about five to seven different mediations that were out there. Again, I can't verify that as a matter of data, uh, but it does strike me that if you're talking about a really big investment treaty case, mediation is an opportunity for states to do something different and re-grab sovereignty. If they are concerned, for example, about regulatory space, why not just take control of the wheel? But you can't do that unless you know what's likely to happen in adjudication. You can't do that and decide if it's worth it if you don't know the cost of the arbitration process. Right. And so this is all about making sure that states have the capacity to use dispute resolution effectively. You create a framework that makes it easier them for them to buy in so they're not just kind of doing something random. I mean, I can't imagine how challenging it would be for a state to kind of say, right, so nobody's ever done this before. We're talking about state regulatory control and our sovereignty, and there's $500 million in the balance. Let's do something nobody's ever done before. I mean, that's not <laughs> that's not going to work. But Let, if let's we hope can... <laughs> the internal audit does not pick up on what we're exactly. doing. Exactly. <laughs> and and I, I very much understand that. I mean, this is about habit. But it's also about being risk averse in a very kind of challenging environment. So it's about making sure that states have the opportunities to access dispute settlement effectively. I mean, if I could think of a theme in my life, that would be what I would want to be able to be part of my legacy, right? Let's make sure that dispute resolution for everyone is effective and efficient. What about on the back end, if you're talking about the cost submissions between the parties and then the costs part of the award, which ends up being, okay, you just take take the money. Mm -hmm. What uh, Do you think that that could be a way to have tribunals require a further rationalization of the cost submissions and then w within the award explain why they're discounting certain cost submissions or not or requiring further proof? I mean, what could be done on that end? I mean, I would love to see more of that from a personal perspective. And, you know, here at ICA, that was actually a comment that was made in one of the panels that, you know, basically this is a last minute thought and so you know it's very it's very truncated and i remember when i was first doing some of my research there was because this tribunal had not actually cited to legal authority or checked legal authority they actually acted in contravention of the duty required by the treaty now mind you that was able to get corrected but this is the problem of not checking what the source of your authority is and not providing some kind of explanation of, of what they're of what they're doing um, and again the data in the book basically suggests that that pattern from the past of not really citing to legal authority and not providing a rationalization that's not getting that much better i mean there are some small incremental changes that i think are constructive but overall the same pattern is there and i have to wonder why i mean is it really that tribunals are just exhausted is it perhaps that they're not incentivized to put things in right maybe one of the things that ICSID or other institutions could think about is making sure that there's a checklist that arbitrators should follow in in terms of what is actually in their award. They're very careful about jurisdiction. They're very careful about merits. They're getting a little bit more careful about quantum, but you know, <laughs> not necessarily or to say nothing of interest. I mean, when I was coding the data,
later related to interest. I can't even tell you how challenging that was. And the, the huge data gaps basically put me in a position of not being able to say anything meaningful. Because like I think about three quarters of the data on interest just wasn't there. They would make decisions, but they wouldn't. Explain them. Yeah. And it's like sometimes they would use LIBOR. Sometimes they wouldn't. And sometimes they would identify an interest rate. And sometimes they wouldn't. I mean, so there's these big gaps within the awards them, themselves. So kind of making sure that tribunals are meticulous about the physical elements of the claim, I think actually could be very useful, but it's going to require stakeholders to buy into that. Right. I mean, from the ICSID perspective, they've got to get, what, 60% of all the member states to buy into any rule revision. So that's a that's a coalition of the willing, but my hope is that if people see the potential value, it's easier for them to buy into the normative solution. You see in practice sometimes a race to, race to the bottom approach between parties to say, well, I won't ask you to rationalize your costs if you don't ask me to rationalize mine, and then you just come with a big lump sum. And so the tribunals almost has their hands tied behind their back in some instances. It's, it's, very, it's very challenging, but I also think that maybe they sometimes want to have their hands tied. So <laughs> They're involved in the race to the bottom. <laughs> I, well, I, but I can imagine there's good reasons why. So... Here's the, here's the thing, is that as the law becomes more judicialized, or as uh, Chief Justice Alslop said, industrialized, if you want to use that <laughs> metaphor, uh, but as the law becomes more adjudicatively pristine, basically the pockets of arbitral discretion are decreasing. And to the extent that costs are still a meaningful, because of the scale of the physical outlay, are a meaningful pocket of discretion. It potentially creates opportunities for flexibility in the ultimate outcome of the award. So I, I recognize that perhaps by being a bit more pristine about costs, we may be losing something. I mean, there's no doubt about that. In other words, you know, a little bit of horse trading. But less people think that arbitrators are the only self-interested ones. Like, let me remind you, <laughs> Lee Epstein is a fantastic political scientist who studied quantitatively decision-making at the U.S. Supreme Court. And one of the things she did, and this was rather innovative, is she went to Washington and Lee, my former institution, who happens to be the alma mater of Justice Powell, a former chief justice, not chief justice, but former justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Justice Powell kept meticulous notes of Supreme Court decision-making and opinion writing. And Lee Epstein was able to go through his personal notes to figure out what was going on with Supreme Court decision-making. And she found empirical evidence of horse trading on the U.S. Supreme Court in terms of what was going on. Wow. So, I mean, but this is the point. is This is adjudication. This is a human desire to try to find justice and fairness. And if you have black letter rules to apply, you may still need some kind of discretion to make sure that things work in the end. Right. And you might need some guidance, which your book will, will hopefully This is what provide. this is this is what I, I'm hoping. If nothing else, it's it's data, right? It's data that can help manage expectations, right? Because what and it's also data that's precise. One of the things that I have found unfortunate during the course of my research is the tribunals don't always demarcate clearly between what I call PLC, parties legal costs, and tribunals 
costs and expenses, the TCE element. I wish we could actually just start using those shorthands because it would make it kind of a more catchy phrase for people to be able to say, oh, parties cost, tribunals cost. And I think what's important here is the scale issue, right? Because the parties legal cost is really the heavy weight on the scale. Whereas the tribunals cost, at least according to my data, are only roughly about 20, uh, pardon me, 10% of overall cost. So a tribunal even now costs roughly about a million. Whereas the parties legal cost, you're talking 10, 15, you know, it's much larger. Uh, but to the extent that people want to incentivize, we have two different tools, right? We have, if people want to incentivize strongly, maybe we should be doing more with the party's costs. If maybe they want to have a more gentle nudge, a signal provision, like a recognition of a kind of a soft norm, then maybe what we should be doing is focusing on the tribunal's costs. So the idea that like one size fits all according to cost and there's a monolithic conception of cost, I think is really unfortunate. I know that it's easy to talk about that in that way because we're human, like we're, our brains are lazy. You know, even with the best of intentions, we're not always that pristine. But I wanna make sure that we don't lose an opportunity. And I do think being very careful about distinctions between parties costs and tribunals costs is really an opportunity to make a meaningful difference. What about, um... The tribunal's cost is a factor of hours, a per hour fee versus an amount in dispute uh, mm. fee. Was there, I mean, is there anything to take away from that? Because, I mean, you have different institutions employing different mechanisms in order to ha how to, how you calculate these costs. Mm -hmm. And we come from the from Stockholm, where the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce is based on an amount in dispute. Mm -hmm. But then you have UNCITRAL, you know, ad hoc arbitrations where it's a, a per hour cost. hourly, and then ICSID is a little bit hourly, but the ICC is more amount in dispute. And where does the secretary come in with their costs? I mean... Yes, I know. <laughs> all right, this is, this is all part of the fun. And it's one of the reasons why I love the idea of a checklist. Yeah. So one of the things, and I'll be honest about this, that's always troubled me is why aren't arbitrators actually saying in their award what's the physical implication of the cost? Because sometimes you see people say, here's the proportion of shift or here's what we're just telling people to do, pay, pay their own way. But it is not always required well it's not required for people to actually set and here's the dollar value or here's the euro value or here's the yen value or here's what's going on with rmb like whatever it is they're not saying it so i have always worried in my research like what are we missing right yeah. so aside from the fact that i would just love to love to see that i don't know if that gap is a function of the fact that tribunals are embarrassed at the high fees that councils are charging or maybe it's so insignificant that they don't think that it's worth their time i don't know maybe if it's just math literacy or maybe it's just exhausting i mean i honestly don't know and so i mean there could be a reasonable explanation for all of this but because i don't know which way the reason skews i can't always say like for certain that this is you know this is what's going on but we do know that these costs are quite quite material yeah it's, it's clear susan that there is a, a need for a conversation about this in the arbitration community generally and also mm -hmm. perhaps particularly in in, in proceedings between you know, parties and and the tribunal members mm -hmm. i think we want to thank you for yes. for initiating this conversation and for for being that poke in the side on the arbitrators <laughs> and the parties. I'm, I'm happy to do it because believe it or not, my entire research agenda related to investment arbitration started with an issue of costs. Mm -hmm.
You know, back to, to square one or full back circle. To, <laughs> back to square one. I mean, I started collecting this data because I, in my very first article that came out in Fordham Law Review in 2005 that I wrote immediately after being in practice in the UK, you know, I had this throwaway line in the article and the, art, and the line was, we don't have to worry about non-meritorious claims because tribunals will essentially shift costs. And I went back and I read that after it was published and I thought, is that right? Is that empirically right? Is that actually what tribunals are doing? And I had this moment of like, I have to make sure that I'm better informed about what I'm saying. I don't want to just say what I think should be true. I'd actually like to get closer to reality. And so this this was the discipline that I imposed on myself to make sure that I was writing better scholarship and providing better information out there. And then once you start looking at what you can get from public awards, of course, you realize you've got a treasure trove of data not available in commercial arbitration. But if we can at least start looking at, at costs carefully, I think it can tell us a lot about our process and how to improve it so it's sustainable for the long time. Definitely. Thank you so much for for sharing this with us, and good luck with the book. You have an interesting summer ahead of you. I do, I do indeed. I do indeed. So thank you so much. <laughs>